electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, a new proposal to ban stock trading by members of Congress. Montana Senator Steve Daines on the bipartisan effort. When you're elected, you are here to serve the people, not the elite. And this, I think, is a step forward, an important step forward to restore the faith and trust of the American people in this institution. Electric vehicles are driving the future for President Biden's climate and job goals. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. We see the automotive industry heading electric over the long run, no matter what. But we have to take steps to make sure that that electric vehicle revolution is made in America. Those stories plus mask mandates. Lyft falls short on riders and Meta's major market cap slip below a key level. That shows you how stupid some of these arbitrary levels are. What it means for big tech regulation. It's very hard to look at a crystal ball and know what's going to happen next, and they may have done it to themselves. It's Wednesday, February 9th, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back, you by in three, two, one, cue, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is off today, and he shared with us where he was going. And we're very glad we don't have cameras there. Um, Andrew, good morning. It's good to see you. Good morning to you. Um, It's nice to see you. Let's take a look at what's been happening. First up today on the podcast, big, too big, just big enough. Meta's stock continues to tumble after a disappointing report for the most recent quarter. It's lost 32% in the last week. The Facebook parent company closed yesterday with a market cap below $600 billion. Now, that was for the first time since May of 2020. And that $600 billion level also happens to be the number House legislators picked for a covered platform under a package of competition bills designed to target big tech's big size. If Meta remains below that threshold, it could avoid the additional regulations the bills would add for the way it conducts business and makes deals, while larger peers like Amazon, Alphabet, Apple, and Microsoft would be subject to the rules. Last month, the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice announced they would work together to revise merger guidelines, which could signal a tougher stance against big deals. Our Andrew Ross Sorkin and his New York Times colleague Kara Swisher spoke to the FTC's chair, Lena Khan, about rewriting the rules of antitrust enforcement and the impact on the biggest of big tech. Chair Khan said, it's about more than that. Congress gave us a huge, huge job that covers the entirety of the U.S. economy. We're bringing merger challenges. Historically, the FTC has brought cases in the you know, retail sector, the grocery sector. So the idea that this is somehow tech-focused, I think, really misses the broader picture, which is we've seen consolidation in a more systemic way across the economy, and both the DOJ and FTC are taking on this in a holistic way. Here's Andrew today on Meta's moment in the crosshairs for both regulators and investors. The reason that it may not have the the target on its back in the same way is because the bills that are in Congress that have focused on these companies 
have actually had cutoffs in terms of market cap. So $600 billion was the cutoff in the congressional bill that was proposed. Uh, They're at 599 uh, Clo- as Clo- of yesterday. Klobuchar's uh, <laughs> bill, I believe, is closer to $500 billion. Yeah. All of this, literally, you know, their market these cap are was arbitrary numbers. $599 billion yesterday. But it's pretty remarkable. And it also, I think, raises some questions about, you know, we were talking to Lena Khan a couple weeks ago and just how to think about antitrust. It's something that we've seen for the last two decades where the top five tech firms have made hundreds of acquisitions, many of which fell beneath the radar. The FTC, under my predecessor, initiated a study of these acquisitions to try to understand what did we miss and what can we be learning to make sure that we are identifying accurately what types of deals may be illegal, even if they're not mapping on to the traditional way that we might have been looking at this. Some of these things do sort themselves out. I mean, in terms of the market. And so you, yeah. you think, okay, if you regulate these companies, you can make them smaller, you can control them, or this and that. And the truth is that it's very hard to look at a crystal ball and know what's, what's going to happen look, next. And they may, they may have done it to themselves. The threat of oversight may and sometimes be enough for some of these situations. Facebook has been put in a corner. They haven't been allowed to make any acquisitions. They know that. You, you don't think they would have been interested in an Activision or something along those lines? Like There are so many companies that they probably would have been interested in along the way. But they've known that they can't go after some of these companies, that they've been put in the penalty box anyway. I will say, though, the dumb, arbitrary... Um, market cap things that they're looking at with some of these bills. Okay, so because Facebook fell to $599 billion, would the rules not apply to it today? And if, if the stock goes up today, it applies to it again? Like that, that shows you how stupid some of these arbitrary levels are. Well, those rules were clearly built for Facebook and built for these companies. Right. Now, you know, right. But I, to me, there's the larger question goes to how you approach antitrust, how you approach regulation to begin with. Because here you have a company that may not have the same success that it was having before. And so, and is it not having that success because it's not able to make acquisitions because of the regulatory right. environment? Right. I, I think, I think just there's the a lot of questions. Of regulatory here. oversight has, has been a pall and has cast a shadow over Meta for a while, over Facebook for a while. They haven't been able to do things because they knew Washington was watching so closely. But they, they've actually made, an, I mean, if you go and look, they haven't made a ma- massive investment. I mean, they obviously haven't bought a TikTok or a yeah. Snap. But they have made some, you know, hundreds of investments over the past several years, mostly smaller. It, it, but it raises all sorts of very interesting questions. Let's talk about what's happening in New York, because the governor here expecting to announce the end of the state's stringent indoor mask mandate today. It'll end a requirement that businesses ask customers for proof of full vaccination or require mask wearing at all times. Other uh, Democrat-led states, including New Jersey, Connecticut, Oregon, and California announced similar moves this week. It's not yet clear if the governor will also drop a separate mask mandate for New York schools that is set to expire in two weeks. And that's a big question. Meantime, Dr. Anthony Fauci making some headlines. In a new interview with the Financial Times, he said the U.S. is heading out of the full-blown pandemic phase of COVID-19. Dr. Fauci predicting the virus would soon become, quote, more manageable. That's thanks to a combination of vaccinations, treatments, and prior infection. He said he hoped there would be an end to all pandemic-related restrictions in the coming months, including mandatory wearing of masks. Dr. Fauci said those decisions would increasingly be made on a local level rather than centrally decided or mandated. We've already seen this this week as governors in some states, including New York, as we just mentioned, have now dropped those uh, without guidance from the federal government. I mean, this is great news. I think it's what we've all been waiting for. 
Uh, there's a part of me that worries, uh, you know, the rest of the world has not gotten the same level of vaccination, although the rest of the world, maybe they have gotten a lot of immunity through natural right. immunity by getting this. Um, you just hope you don't see a new strain that develops somewhere else and then gets brought into this country again. Um, let's just hope we are on an upward cycle here and that this continues because it feels really good to think about it. Fingers crossed. There's a developing story in Washington that we're also watching. Senate Democrats are getting serious about banning lawmakers from trading stocks. Elon Moy joins us with more on this. And Elon, this is something that we've been talking about for a long time. What is actually making them take this more seriously at this point? Uh, well, Becky, it's not just Senate Democrats. Support is growing on both sides of the aisle for legislation that would ban stock trading by members of Congress. Today, GOP Senator Steve Daines and Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren are set to unveil a new bill that goes even further than the existing proposals. Not only would it prohibit trading while in office, it would also ban owning any individual stocks or commodities including through a blind trust. Now, this is the first bipartisan bill in the Senate. A previous bill from Senator Sherrod Brown would allow lawmakers to keep holding on to their assets without trading them. That had support from Republicans in the House, but not from Republicans in the Senate. Meanwhile, Democratic Senator John Ossoff has called for lawmakers to put all their assets in a blind trust. His bill now has eight Democratic co-sponsors, but none of them are Republicans. Now, yesterday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer told reporters that Democrats are trying to come up with a unified approach. We have different bills from a variety of different members, and I've asked our members to get together and try to come up with one bill, but I would like to see it done. Now, several GOP senators are working on their own bills, and guys, McConnell has said that this is an idea worth considering. Back over to you. So, Elon, when they start talking about a united front, I guess that gets down to the details. I mean, we had Ro Khanna on last week, I think it was, maybe the week before. He said he's fine with not trading anything. He just doesn't think his wife shouldn't be allowed to trade. But I'm actually for banning uh, stock trading and uh, have never traded stocks and support a ban on members of Congress. Uh, not, and not trading stocks. I don't think, though, that should apply to spousal assets prior to marriage. I think that would be unfair. When you're talking about shared assets, how is is that something that that works? And the idea that they don't want to go with a blind trust, at least a blind trust, you can say we're going to put everything in that. That makes more sense to me than the idea that I won't trade, but my spouse will. Yeah, so there's a couple of different dials to turn here. And one of them is what exactly do those rules look like and who do they cover? Do they just cover the lawmakers? Do they cover lawmakers as spouses, especially when you have an issue of joint accounts? Does it also cover dependent children? Because the current existing disclosures do cover uh, dependent kids. So does that uh, continue in any type of beefed up or ramped up uh, legislation or rules? The other thing to think about is what is the penalty for noncompliance? One of the reasons that people are criticizing the existing rules is because it's only a couple of hundred bucks that you get charged if you don't follow them. Um, so some of the proposals are talking about things like forfeiting any profit from the investments that you made if you don't follow these new rules. A million dollars potential penalty, your entire salary. And Senator Ben Sass is also talking about potential jail time for any lawmakers who uh, don't comply with the laws. So there's a lot of discussion both about what the rules look like and what the penalty should be. I will go out on a limb and say I, I bet there's no chance that they pass something that says anybody does jail time for this. You know, every time we bring 
bring this up with any <laughs> sitting official, their answer is, well, there's disclosure. It's fine. This stuff is disclosed. But it's not disclosed fully. It's not disclosed in a timely manner. And it's pretty hard to come up with that stuff. I mean, if they want to stick with disclosure, they should have disclosure in a very easy to read public form that is put out very quickly so that we're not looking six months later to say, oh, you voted this on this. Did you have any financial interest in that? Um, is this getting more steam at this point because, I mean, I know several candidates who are running against sitting uh, congressional leaders, or not, not leaders, congressional members, who are using this as a campaign issue. Is that why they're suddenly taking this more seriously? Well, I think the momentum really started around the beginning of the pandemic when you saw several lawmakers even come under scrutiny from federal regulators um, for potentially trading off of the decisions that they were making around, you know, the massive amounts of stimulus that they were putting into the economy. So that was really the impetus for this sort of latest round of bills. Um, but this has certainly gained momentum as I think there's just a lot of deep distrust in government right now. And this perhaps could be one way to rebuild that relationship with their constituents. Ilan, thank you. Great to see you. Lyft shares, they are falling. Earnings of nine cents per share beat estimates by a penny. Revenue also beat, but active riders, take a look at this, of 18.7 million. It fell short of expectations. That's a decline from the prior quarter and remains below pre-pandemic levels. Lyft's first quarter guidance came in well below expectations with active riders expected to decline because of the Omicron COVID surge. The company's CEO, Logan Green, saying the call on the call uh, that the supply of drivers recovered during the quarter and improved ride ETAs by 30%, and airport rides more than doubled in the quarter compared to last year. That's the good news. There's so many interesting pieces in this because it's clearly a company who was so that, that was so affected by the pandemic because riders uh, and drivers both had yep, this mentality of what happens on any of these things. It, it's got to still be a moving target in terms of how many drivers they eventually have for this, whether riders are eventually more willing to do things like share a ride or maybe take it shorter distances than, you know, like they'll, they'll take it to the airport, but will they take it, uh, you know, 30 blocks down to, to jump in to go to a restaurant or something? Um, that, well, the, pr the problem is, and look, you know, I'm, I'm a city boy, so I, yeah. I take a lot of, <laughs> I take a lot of Ubers and Lyfts. And the truth is the prices have still, they've come high. down a little bit, but right. they're still pretty high. And the truth is, I, I used to always talk about arbitraging the taxis yeah. and the Ubers. The arbitrage is still in favor, in of, the favor of the taxis at the moment. Yeah, right. so that's that's interesting. And if that's the case, I mean, it's good news for the drivers who do show up. If a lot of drivers show up, then you have driver unhappiness because they're not going to be making as much money. Um, just a weird, weird sort of mentality to try and play through. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, the Senate's bipartisan effort regulating their own portfolios. Montana Senator Steve Daines on a stock trading ban for all of his colleagues. It's never too late to do the right thing. I think putting more accountability on members is the right answer. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, 
packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Stand Andrew by. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. We've got a new proposal out of Washington this morning to ban stock trading by members of Congress. It's the first bipartisan effort in the Senate, and it comes at a flurry of similar ideas from both sides of the Capitol. Joining us right now is one of those lawmakers behind the new Senate plan, Senator Steve Daines, Republican of Montana. Good morning to you. Uh, It's fascinating to see this all taking place and to you joining hands in a bipartisan way on this. Um, What do you think the chances are that this actually passes? Well, uh, you you look at uh, what we've proposed here, we're off to a good start. Uh, Here you've got a Republican from Montana working with a Democrat from Massachusetts and Elizabeth Warren. When you've got Steve Daines and Elizabeth Warren working on something in a bipartisan fashion, that greatly increases the odds. But look, Congress has one of the lowest approval ratings of any institution in America. The American people have lost faith and trust in Congress. When you're elected to Congress, you are here to serve, not to be served. When you're elected, you are here to serve the people, not the elite. And this, I think, is a step forward, an important step forward, to restore the faith and trust of the American people in this institution. Senator, one of the questions, and and this is a very uh, limiting program that you've set up here, including restricting blind trusts. Why, why did you restrict the blind trust? Because I think there are some people on the Hill and I, that I've talked to in the past 24 hours that look at that and think that it, that's actually one step too far. Yeah, well, we're going to have a, a good spirit debate about this. But the, the intent here is to ensure that members and their spouses are not trading or holding individual stocks and bonds and so forth. They can hold those in widely held mutual funds, ETFs. That's perfectly allowed. Uh, But the blind trust, listen, you put your assets in a blind trust, you're still aware of uh, what assets were put in that blind trust. That's just the reality of it. And we're trying to reduce the conflicts of interest here. There's no perfect solution, but there are much better solutions. And what I think Elizabeth Warren and I have have proposed here will be bipartisan and I think strikes the, the right balance here of preventing these conflicts of interest. A congressperson had uh, raised the question about whether you could sell your assets or stocks on your way into Congress and then take that money and put it into a blind trust where somebody else could invest it at their discretion. What do you think of that? Well, we've looked at a lot of different options. We've gone back and forth. We're trying to strike, again, a bipartisan bill. Again, when you have Elizabeth Warren and Steve Daines proposing something, that really, uh, there's the spectrum of Congress, frankly. And, and so we've worked back and forth. We've spent a lot of time going back and forth. In fact, Elizabeth and I have been on the phone a number of times, as well as meeting face-to-face, building support and going back and forth. So I think we've got something that it actually could pass. So you have a lot of members out there proposing individual bills. Well, if they want to get a press release for the sake of an individual bill, that's fine. We want to actually make a difference and get something passed. I was in the private sector for 28 years. I was measured on results and outcomes. That's the focus here. Look, we've talked on this program how all of us, uh, journalists and others, and those in corporate America can own stocks, especially when they're uh, privy to inside information and the like. So this, to me, makes a ton of sense. The question I was going to ask you, though, is, you know, what kind of conversations have you had with the likes of a Mitch McConnell or a Nancy Pelosi? 
and, and, and are they on board with this? Yeah. Well, I've yet to directly speak with, uh, with Leader McConnell or with Speaker Pelosi on this particular bill. But I'm having several conversations with my colleagues in the United States Senate. Listen, there, there, there's an appetite for this. And I think once we get this introduced here, and it'll be eminent, we'll get this introduced, uh, you're going to see growing support for this bipartisan. It's the only bipartisan bill that will be introduced. There, again, a lot of individual members are out there introducing their bills. This is bipartisan. It's taken us a little, a little longer to put together this bipartisan compromise. This actually could pass. And I think it strikes the right balance to help restore faith and trust in Congress. The American people have lost it, and rightfully so. Hey, Senator Daines, we've been bringing this question up with people we've had on, and the answer we occasionally get back is, yeah, I'm all in favor of not allowing members like myself, these people would say, to to trade, but you can't tell me my spouse can't trade. And that gets a little complicated. I mean, when you're talking about saying, I won't trade, but my spouse is, is it one and the same? Will your bill prevent spouses from trading as well? It does. So we've limited the scope of this to the member and the spouse. Uh, my sweet wife, Cindy, and I have been married for 35 years. I just think when you're a married couple, it, it's hard to separate that. And so I think we've, we've said it's, it's members and spouses. That's where Elizabeth Warren and I are going with this bill. Uh, we allow children. Uh, you allow staff to continue to trade. But I think we need to keep this focused on the member and the spouse. And again, I think we've, we've struck the right bipartisan balance here that can actually get something passed and signed by the president. Children, you allow children who are still um, dependents to trade? Yes. Mm -hmm. Why? I mean, if they're dependent, it'd be your money they'd be trading with, right? Yeah, but at the the end of the day, I mean, that'd be a a very small exception. But I think the focus here will be on the member and the spouse. Uh, And again, they can hold hold widely diversified mutual funds, ETFs. uh, That's all allowed. It's just trading individual stocks. It's getting the concentration of wealth into individual companies and individual stocks. That's where we're going to keep the focus here in terms of uh, avoiding that conflict of interest. Senator, Senator, why not limit it on the staff? Um, clearly, the staff at the SEC, for example, um, is blocked from, from, from buying and selling individual stocks. Why, given that you have to imagine a senator or a congressperson is, is going to have access to information. That's the reason that you're doing this and you're trying to create credibility among elected officials. But I think you're trying to create credibility among government, if you will. Why, why limit it? it? It's a fair question. Remember, the key staff members still have to submit complete public financial disclosures of, of assets that they hold. So that, that's a transparent process. But as somebody, again, who spent 28 years in the private sector, I do want to make sure we don't prohibit the best, the brightest, the most talented individuals to come and serve here on Capitol Hill. Uh, you're, you're only as good as the quality of the people that you hire. The organization you build are as good as the employees. So I don't want to put that burden on staff. I want to be able to attract the very best staff in this country to come work here to tackle these complex problems. But put the accountability back on the member. I don't disagree with you, but this, that argument has been made about senators and congresspeople, meaning that there are those who may not want to seek elected office because all of a sudden they're not going to be able to buy individual stock. That has been the argument, as far as I've heard it, for, for decades now. And so why you'd apply that to yourselves but then not the staff, to me, I, 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 don't, I, I guess I just don't understand why make the distinction. Yeah. Well, again, this is just where I look at uh, I want to be able to hire staff that will not be uh, 
in any way disincentivize the very best of Bryce to come here work. Listen, we are facing some of the greatest challenges in you, our country and the are world. Are you concerned it will disincentivize so, people so to? That's, are, you dis, are you concerned it will disincentivize people to seek elected office? Uh, I, I'll tell you why I don't think it will. It's because I want to make sure you could still hold diversified mutual funds. You can still have investments. What we are targeting here is the trading of individual stocks. Right. Uh, that, that's the focus here. But you can, have, you can still have diversified mutual funds, ETFs, and so forth. I think that's the right balance. It's going to be fascinating to watch this play out. One final question. Why now? I mean, this has taken a very, I mean, this has been on the table as an issue that's been discussed for years. Um, and every time it's come up, it's sort of bubbled up and then been maybe watered down. What do you think is going to happen this time? Yeah, well, it's never too late to do the right thing. And uh, look at, again, I think putting more accountability on members is the right answer. I, I, the same thing is true in balancing budgets. I've always said, if you want to balance the budget, uh, if, if Congress doesn't balance the budget, you should stop paying members of Congress. So I believe in the accountability should be placed on the member. Uh, but this, there's a moment here, I think, when you're starting to see a growing distrust in Congress. We looked at what can we do to try to restore some of that faith and trust in Congress. This is a step forward. And that's why I'm really glad to be partnered with Michael Elizabeth Warren. When you got a Democrat from Massachusetts, a Republican from Montana working on a bill like this, uh, we got better odds this thing actually might get passed and signed by the president. We will see. Senator, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you. Next on Squawk Pod, upgrading the grid. Will Americans hit the road in electric vehicles? Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is coming up. Range anxiety is still one of the factors that might cause somebody to hesitate in adopting an EV. And we need to speed up that adoption because that's, of course, absolutely vital to us meeting our climate change goals before it's too late. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning again, everybody. Welcome back to Squawk Box. This is CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is off today. After more than a year in office, President Biden finally acknowledging Tesla's EV strength. If you blinked, you probably miss it, but here it is. Since 2021, companies have announced investments totaling more than $200 billion in domestic manufacturing here in America. From iconic companies like GM and Ford building out new electric vehicle production to Tesla, our nation's largest electric vehicle manufacturer, to innovative younger companies like Rivian building electric trucks or Proterra building electric buses. These companies joining Intel, bringing microchip manufacturing back to America after decades of decay. From Texas Instruments to Samsung in Texas to TSMC in Arizona, we're seeing the beginnings of an American manufacturing comeback. 
You may have also caught a reference there to Tritium. That's an EV charging company that just announced plans for a new plant in Tennessee that could eventually produce 30,000 chargers a year. Joining us right now to talk about the EV build-out and the Biden administration's new infrastructure law is Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. And Mr. Secretary, thanks for being here. Um, this is pretty big news. A lot of companies that are investing in the United States and building things right here, that, that plays into the administration's focus on Made in America. That's right. Look, we see the automotive industry heading electric over the long run, no matter what. But we have to take steps to make sure that that electric vehicle revolution is made in America. We want American workers on American soil getting the benefit of, uh, of that economic activity. Yesterday's announcement was about chargers, which is another very important part uh, of the, the infrastructure, of course, that's going to support EVs. The president's vision is to have a network of half a million EV chargers across the country. And that's very important, especially in areas where people live in multifamily dwellings. So it's not as simple as just uh, a single family home where you can plug it in in your garage overnight. Uh, and it's important in rural areas where people take long drives over long distances and need to know that there's going to be a charge available between where they start and where they finish. Even with these newer vehicles that have two, three, four hundred mile plus range, uh, range anxiety is still one of the factors that might cause somebody to hesitate in adopting an EV. And we need to speed up that adoption uh, because that's, of course, absolutely vital to us meeting our climate change goals before it's too late. You know, we just played that clip from President Biden actually giving a, sh a shout out to, to Tesla, but that has been something that's been missing for quite a while. Um, Tesla hasn't been invited to these White House meetings, and Elon Musk isn't really somebody who's been heralded. And the reporting has said that, you know, this is happening because the administration doesn't like Tesla because they're seen as anti-union. Made in America, does that mean uh, union only? Or made in America, is it good as long as it's providing good jobs for people here in this country? Look, as you know, the president strongly believes in every worker having the free choice to join a union. We believe in good paying jobs and, and we believe that unions built the middle class. Uh, we also admire the range of American companies that have innovated, uh, including Tesla, which did so much to make uh, EVs possible in, in America. Now it's, it's mainstream uh, earlier on, uh, at a time, by the way, of course, when, when U.S. policy uh, with tax credits was, was supporting companies like Tesla. You know, that, that wasn't viewed as such a sure bet. Uh, now we see some of the most iconic, some would have said old school names in auto manufacturing out of Detroit, right there alongside companies out of Silicon Valley, all of them in very different ways, helping move America toward this goal. Uh, we need to make sure that we have all of the different parts of American industry and of the American workforce attuned to this goal because this is the future. I, again, there's no question whether autos are headed electric. The question is, will we get there in time? Will it be made in America? And will it be done in a way that all Americans can benefit, that Americans can afford these vehicles and capture those savings, those gas and diesel savings that you have uh, when you're filling up with electrons instead of gas and diesel? That's a really good point. If you want this to be affordable to everybody, why is it set up in tax credits as this way? Because to qualify for the full $7,500 tax credit, you need to have at least $10,000 in taxes that you owe. If you look at the demographic for who buys these things, in 2019, the top category was white men who earn at least $100,000, have a college degree. I, I mean, this it, it's not mass market at this point, and the way the credits have been set up aren't necessarily designed to make it so. 
And that's exactly why we've proposed a new model going forward. This is in the president's Build Back Better proposal to Congress. The idea is to make sure that we buy down that sticker cost so that everybody can capture the savings. Look, there's a lot of interesting coverage, even just this month, about when we see parity. In other words, when we see the moment when an EV is cheaper to buy and own than a regular internal combustion engine vehicle. Uh, by some accounts, on some vehicles, that's already true. But um, uh, not in terms of the sticker price. It's only if you have the total cost of ownership factored in and those tax credits. Uh, so we can redesign the tax credits in a smarter way, and, and that's part of what we've put forward. Uh, you look at uh, dead, these pickup. Senator Manchin's not going to support it. Is this going to survive in some way? Is this going to be carved out? Look, there are so many policies in the president's Build Back Better vision. I can't say what name they're going to go by or what package they're going to move in. I can't say that they're good policies that, that uh, deserve to happen and move forward. And I can also say that uh, whatever happens with Build Back Better, we are already working with the historic bipartisan infrastructure law that did pass, that did get signed, and that among other things, is calling on my department and the Department of Energy to team up as we're doing to prepare $7.5 billion in support for states that are gonna come in with their plans on building out those EV charging networks that are such an important part of this. And look, EV chargers, it's going to be a little different than what we're used to with gas stations. Uh, in some ways, it's easier because you can have them at residences and workplaces. In other ways, it's harder uh, because uh, there, there are different amounts of time associated with different kinds of chargers. This is going to be a huge part of the story of American transportation, even just in the next five years. And I'm not sure folks realize what a big revolution this is. It's one of the reasons yesterday's announcement about those chargers themselves being manufactured here in the United States is such good news. Mr. Secretary, Tesla, Ford, General Motors, we had Rivian on that list, and we also had Lucid on that list. And one of the things that's fascinating is if you read the reviews of these vehicles, Tesla, Lucid, and Rivian get outstanding marks, uh, typically much higher, frankly, than Ford and GM for their EV vehicles. Those companies, of course, non-unionized. And I I'm curious what you make of that. Well, look, I'm, I'm not going to uh, come on here and endorse an individual product or, or pit one American company against each other. They are out there competing. Uh, I, I will say it's important for us to move toward widespread adoption of electric vehicles. So the, it, it's one thing if they're viewed as luxury cars, and, and that's definitely how kind of the early generations of EVs tended to be viewed. It's another to, to make sure that these are uh, the, the, the standard for all different kinds of categories of vehicles. And what I'm seeing, both from the traditional uh, Detroit OEMs and from the newer, younger companies, uh, is that what they are generating in terms of these, these electric vehicles are extraordinary. Uh, they can outcompete uh, their uh, combustion engine counterparts, and uh, uh, they're, uh, uh, I can tell you from, from having uh, uh, been able to, to experience them personally, they're, they're a pleasure to drive and to ride. And then separately, I wanted to ask you about the electric grid, because you know, as, as we build out these, these charging stations and the number of electric vehicles becomes larger in terms of volume, there's a question about whether we actually have a grid that can support all of this. How concerned are you about that? Well, very. Uh, it's one of the reasons why the infrastructure law includes a lot of support for modernizing our grid. Remember a year ago when we were first uh, launching this vision, we were having all these arguments uh, with, with some folks saying, hey, if it's not a road or bridge, it doesn't count as infrastructure. And we were saying, wait a minute, the internet is infrastructure, pipes are infrastructure, grid is infrastructure. And that's all the more true when you see how the grid is connected to, to transportation. Uh, we, we've been needing for a long time the same way that we need to do our roads and bridges. 
uh, we've been needing to do a lot of work on our grid. It's, it's more or less uh, one year, I think, right now uh, since we saw these horrifying scenes of American citizens in Texas melting snowballs in, in, in their bathtub to be able to flush their toilets because because uh, uh, what was going on there, partly because they hadn't prepared their grid uh, to be resilient in the face of the future. So, uh, yeah, I was with Secretary Granholm yesterday. Her Department of Energy is leading, uh, I, I think, uh, a generational effort no less important than what's going on with the roads and bridges, even if it's a little less visible to most Americans. Secretary Buttigieg, we've talked a lot about the 5G rollout and the problems that have existed because the differences between the FAA and the FCC. Um, I, I've heard from, from people who are in the know on this that you were pretty essential behind the scenes in, in getting all sides to kind of come to the table. How, how do you think there's, this resolves itself? Well, I, I really appreciate the collaboration that has gone on uh, between people who, who weren't normally asked to be in the same room. Look, the telecom world and uh, the aviation sector are very different, uh, but uh, have this uh, this area where uh, there's such uh, an important need for, for collaboration. The same is true on the public sector side with everybody uh, in the federal government who deals with, with, with Spectrum, who deals with uh, telecommunications and, and who deals with aviation to be engaging. Uh, really, really encouraged by, by the way that, that that collaboration has happened, especially in the weeks since, uh, uh, since we were seeing those, uh, uh, those very real concerns about flight disruptions. We got a long way to go. Uh, we, we got to continue to uh, refine not just the technical side, uh, but, but the way we approach these things uh, as a government, not just so that 5G uh, uh, cell service for, for, uh, for our cell phones and, and aviation can, can coexist comfortably, but as we see more and more different uses of the spectrum, making sure that that unfolds in a way that makes sense for all Americans, for, for industry, for the economy, and, uh, and for safety, of course. Secretary Buttigieg, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Squawk Pod today. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe will be back tomorrow. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, please follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.